This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. And we are back. This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Matt Caraccio. And of course, the summer seminar series keeps rolling along and the movement marbles. That's the that's the idea. The movement marvels. That is the subject of this summer seminar series. And I am beyond excited to welcome a very special guest to our movement marvel discussion. He is the lead educator and content creator at Emergence, as well as the owner of Building Better Athletes. He is a performance coach and NCAA record holder. I'm talking about the one and only Mr. Mike Zwiefel, who is making his second appearance on the Summer Seminar Series. Michael, welcome to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Matt, it's a pleasure to be here. I always love talking with you. So, Mike, I mean, I am just genuinely excited to get this discussion started. And for all those people listening, we had technical difficulties on the last coverage of this episode. So Mike is going to be kind of showering us with even more information as we get into it. So welcome for the ride, Mike. You know, I I presented this to everybody as movement marvels because I really wanted to invite both coaches, fans, and analysts into the discussion. And sometimes when we talk about what makes a positional player great, or we talk about skill, we lose kind of those images in our mind that allow us to really kind of think about what's being said and understand it. So hopefully by talking about these ideas within the context of a player, we can really welcome people into this discussion and hopefully this lens of looking at player performance. So Mike, when I when I presented that topic of movement marvels to you, I mean, there's so many players in American football that this could apply to. What were just some of the things that resonated with you when you heard that was the topic? What were some of the things that began to swirl in your mind as you began to choose a potential subject for this discussion? Yeah, my, my first thought was obviously receiver. That's why I played receiver. So I thought about players who who I studied. And I'm not a big, uh, I guess, comic book or Marvel fan, if they want to say that's what Marvel means. But I guess when you think about a lot of those superheroes, they kind of were, were unassuming or just a regular person, but had these super abilities and superpowers. So that's why I thought about some people that were probably maybe unheralded or uh, under the radar, um, not super, like super stature in terms of their size or strength or speed, kind of unassuming, but had these super abilities to be able to play the position of receiver. And so that's kind of what I thought about. And when that goes back to that, despite maybe lacking some size or speed or strength. Uh, you know, there are a couple of players that I wanted to talk about. We'll get to who I'm talking about later, but they're all dexterous, meaning that they, despite some of the physical limitations, they were always able to kind of solve any of the problems in front of them. And dexterity means they're to solve those problems uh, correctly, quickly, rationally, and resourcefully. And that's what these players possessed and what they demonstrated in my mind. Um, or, you know, they were very adaptable. They, they always seemed, no matter what was in front of them, They found ways to create space, to get open, to make the catch, and be productive and consistent throughout their careers. And so when I thought about Movement Marvel, I thought about someone that, kind of like me, um, unassuming, you know, about six foot, 190 pounds, not super big, not super fast, not super strong, but was really, really productive. Um, And so the guy I'm going to talk about, you'll you'll introduce here in a second, but that's kind of what came to my mind when you, you brought that topic up. Yeah, and I, and I love the idea of being unheralded or somebody that seems to kind of be a player that we may not predict will have the highest degree of performance just because of the aesthetics or their physical qualities. And I, and I love that that's where you went with the idea because 
at the end of the day, we want production. And that's what we're looking for on the field. The players that can make the plays when they count. And I don't think there's any like gripe. I don't think there's any <laughs> scenario in the world where people won't agree that Marvin Harrison, the Hall of Fame wide receiver, eight-time Pro Bowl player, three-time All-Pro, as well as a Super Bowl champion, I don't think anybody will disagree that Marvin Harrison certainly fits the bill when we're talking about a player that got it done on the field in terms of production. You're talking about a player with over 1,000 receptions, over 1,400 yards, and over 128 touchdowns. He is among the top 10 in multiple categories, and I think he's definitely a player. When you say he's six foot, 195 pounds, he can be walking down the street, and there's no way that you're going to assume that he is probably one of the greatest wide receivers of all time. So, Mike, just before we get into this discussion of this incredible player, what are some of the problems and some of the the, the things that wide receivers see on the field? What are some of the challenges and obstacles and problems that they see on the field? So that way we can kind of frame this discussion and kind of really kind of connect to maybe what Marvin Harrison and what made him so great. Well, yeah, at the base level, you know, playing receivers about creating space or getting open and catching the ball. But there's there's an art and science to that. And that's where, like, I chose Marvin because he was the first players that I studied. Um, you know, Jerry Rice is a little bit before my time, but Marvin Harrison was a guy that I studied that I think, you know, when I watched him and watched how we prepared along with Peyton Manning, he understood that this was an art. Playing receiver was an art and a science of how to continually get open, how to catch the ball, how to create space. He was one of the first players that I, I thought about that. And so, again, when you're trying to create space and get open and find gaps, or find, uh, there is a, a kind of a, an art and a science to it in terms of how you manipulate a defender, how you manip- manipulate them by your demeanor, by your speed, by your tempo, by your stem, um, how you have to beat like a, a second-level defender versus a first-level defender versus maybe even a third-level defender. Um, and Marvin was the guy that I, when I studied, you know, you know, was very adaptable in all those different ways. And what's interesting if you study Marvin Harrison – and the Colts at that, that time, that, that system, you always knew where to find Marvin Harrison. He was on the right side of the offense, split out, rarely went in motion, was never like in a bunch, was never on the left side. You always knew where to find him. So as a defensive coordinator, like that's a dream where I, I need to slow this guy down. I know he's going to line up every single play. There's no surprises. And despite that, despite um, knowing where he's going to line up, despite lacking great height, super speed, you know, uh, super strength, he always – I mean, it was eight years. I think he has the NFL record where – He's the only player for eight years to have 1,200 yards receiving and I think 10 touchdowns. I mean, you couldn't stop him from 98 to 2006. He was the best player, the best receiver in the game. Um, and despite all those factors, all those things set up, I would say, kind of against him. Where, like, is you want to have a, a great receiver, an offense quarter typically is going to move him around, shuffle him around from, you know, from the X to Z, the slot, put him in motion so you get matchups. And Marvin was never that guy. He was always split out and always knew what the, uh, where he was going to be. So, um, can I ask you a question, Mike, right there? Yeah. I'm just going to ask you a question because it came up in, in in our take two of this. Yes, for everybody, the take two of this discussion. It was something that just resonated with me that I, I really wanted to ask you about. Today, that's that's looked at as a red flag. How do you feel about that? People talk about like, you know, a player that's only lined up on one side is a little bit of a red flag now. Do you think that that necessarily means they're not as adaptable as we think? Is that a red flag, potentially? That's a great question. I... I... I wouldn't necessarily feel that way personally, but I mean, it's obviously it comes down to the offensive scheme. Right. I think it was uh, Rick Barry, uh, old receiver, you know, uh, 
used to play on one side, and one of the, the theories was they only got to learn one position. And so they always know, you know, they're going to be on this side. They only run these certain routes. They're going to catch the ball in this manner. That it, it simplified things for receiver. Is it a red flag? Um, I wouldn't think so, personally. But this is interesting because, honestly, one thing I, when I work with receivers, I always ask them first off, like, what side do you prefer to catch the ball on? And so for me, um, there's actually some interesting research in, in baseball. Like, I, when I swing a baseball bat, I'm a lefty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a right eye dominant. So I always ask for like their eye dominance. You can just, if you want to know your eye dominance, just pull the triangle out in front of your, yourself between your thumbs and your index fingers. You know, put that triangle around some sort of object out in the space and then close your right eye and then close your left eye. Whichever eye that you closed and, it, and the, the object stayed in the, in the triangle, that eye that's open is your dominant eye. So for me, I'm right eye dominant. So as a lefty, being cross dominant, I mean, I swing lefty, my right eye is dominant. There's might be an advantage to that in baseball. And that actually comes over to me in football where I prefer catching things over my right shoulder. So over my left shoulder, I'm definitely weaker. I prefer to turn my hands over and catch a pinky. But every receiver I've worked with has a, 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 a dominant side that they prefer to catch the ball over. And I don't know many people or coordinators are thinking about um, you know, setting up their players for success in terms of, like if I'm on the left side of the, the, the offense formation, that's where I was definitely more comfortable catching the ball because the majority of the passes are going to be coming over my right shoulder compared to the right side. Um, so is it a red flag if you only play one side? I don't think necessarily no. And in today's offense, I think there's a lot of different things you can do to play to a player's strength. And just as Marvin only played the right side, it obviously wasn't a, a, a hindrance to him. So I wouldn't necessarily see it as a, as a, a red flag personally. Um, and I think in today's world, Players from a young age are playing all areas of the field, so I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing. No, and I, and, I, and I welcome that because, I mean, to quote somebody that we're both very familiar with, Mr. Sean Mishka would always quote Bruce Lee and saying, you know, I fear the man who, who actually practices the same punch a thousand times, not the man who, you know, practices a thousand punches. So in some respect, you know, being, you know, on one side of the field doesn't necessarily mean that you have any – um, inability to play somewhere else. Um, it just means that you may be exceptionally, you know, uh, adaptable on that side of the field. And who knows if that's even the best side of the field for you. So there's a lot of exploration. So I digress, but I just had to ask you that question, Michael, because that is something that is coming up frequently. I see it pointed out. He only played on the left side of the formation at such and such university. And that's something that we should be aware of. And I think that I don't know if I really ever bought into that. And I'm just, I'm just, you know, doesn't mean that it, we could be both wrong. It could be. We could be wrong. But I just wondered what somebody who works with receivers might feel about that comment. So, so Mike, I mean, being lined up on one side of the field, in terms of the routes and where he was at most kind of manipulative and adaptable, take us through some more of the glowing kind of things that made Marvin Harrison that player that, like you said, maybe he's not a superhero in the comic books, but he certainly was on the football field. Yeah, and then again, you look back in the Colts' offense, not only was he on the right side of the field, but he did the majority of his damage on like two or three routes, like a drive route, a quick little five-yard drive route, a kind of an intermediate dig route, 12 to 15 yards. And then he had some combinations off of that. But the drive and dig were the primary routes where he caught, you know, a majority of his passes on those two simple routes. So not only was he on the same side, but the majority of his damage was done on a very predictable uh, route that he ran quite a bit during each game and would have you know anywhere from four to six catches each game on those two routes. Um, so, so with that, you know, how, how can you not stop a guy that has predictable location where he's going to line up in the field and predictable routes where Marvin was so good at, at despite that information for the defense, they know kind of what he's going to do. He was still able to create space. 
because he was a couple things that stood out to me was so good at. One was he was a great manipulator of his pace and his tempo. He, I think he had a really good understanding that the relationship between him and the corner or him and a defensive back, how that was kind of uh, intertwined and related. How that if he changes his pace, it's going to change the information and the pace that the defender plays at. And so he was always great at doing these little subtle subtlety changes in his tempo, going from fast to slow for a quick step or two, and then back to acceleration, which would then kind of put the D back in kind of oh shit mode or panic mode because of that change in pace. He was great at adding like a little quick one-two stutter, staring his eyes through the defender, kind of freezing him, and then making his cut. So, I mean, he was really good, I think, at understanding that his pace, how he manipulated and changed his pace, also manipulated and changed how the, inf- the, the information the D-back was picking up on him, and it was just more cloudy. So he was really deceptive in that regard. And secondly, was along with that pace and that tempo, he always played at a pace that he was always in control. And I found this with most all great athletes that are really good in the sport. They, they're always in control of the situation. They never get panicked. They never rush. And he was always that guy, never getting over from himself, never you know, falling over his toes. He was always in control. In many cases, what he would do is he would almost let the D back feel like they're in control, and like so they'd get comfortable that they, I got top shoulder, I'm in control here, and then all of a sudden he'd do a quick throw by and be, and be wide open, and create space. So he was always great and like not panicking. It's okay if a guy gets us, you know, in phase with you, it gets on your top shoulder. Don't panic, don't rush. Sometimes you want them to feel that way because then now the defender feels like they're in control and they get a little bit uh, complacent and they get feel comfortable. And maybe they, they think, oh, I got this guy covered, like the ball's not going to go here. And all of a sudden, Marvin would, you know, because he's comfortable in that environment, because he was at a pace and a tempo he, he was control, he was very effective and efficient at pick up information and also being adaptable and just adjusting off those situations. Um, if you really watched kind of how he ran those routes, you know, what was really interesting to me was that he, he really never peeked back or looked back to the quarterback early. He was always searching and scanning the environment. Like he had this internal clock, and I know him and Peyton Manning's uh, work together was legendary. That they just kind of could look at each other and know what the other was going to do. Well, he would just like at the last second snap his head back, like knowing like there's a sixth sense of the ball's you know right in the air to me. He'd snap his head back, make the catch, and then what that allowed him to do since he didn't peek back early was it gave him more time, more time to kind of search and scan the environment to know where the defender's at. And if you watched him, he was so great at either you know catching the ball and avoiding any sort of big hits especially on in-breaking routes like a drive route or a dig route, those are routes where there's a, a high likelihood that you have a backer running towards you, you're going to get your shit knocked off. And so he was really, really great at, again, being on 185 pounds, you have to avoid those hits and live the fight another day. And what he, he was, why I think he was able to do that was he never like peeked back to the quarterback. He was always looking out of his break, where's, this, where's the defender at? Where's the secondary defender at? Where are they coming from? So when he looked back to catch the ball, he knew he could either slip vertical or slip back and the, the linebacker or the safety coming to collision him would go to that interception point and he wouldn't be there because he was so nifty and sly at sliding off those things. So um, he was really, really good, great at that. And again, since he only ran like a couple routes, you know, his ability to make that same route look different or have the same stem and have a counter off of that was, was so magnificent. And all you need is if you run three digs and you catch, you know, three 15-yard in-breaking digs, all you need is that one counter make that route look the exact same and counter to like a comeback or counter to an out. And that's going to be in the defensive back's mind the whole game. So he was able to kind of layer on these routes that looked exactly like each other, but he was able to counter off that, which is great. And then personally, um, for me, which, I, you know, I like, I'm, again, I'm 6'1", 185 pounds. Um, you know, he, what he 
allowed for me to in football you have this i you know i i love football but i think there's this this face fake masculinity trend where it's all about being tough and hard-nosed and physical and marvin was a guy that would catch the ball and would certainly be perfectly fine with going to the ground and avoiding the hit like not trying to run a guy over like knowing your limitations sometimes and not like i'm just gonna live the fight another day i don't need to fake this you know put my head into a 225 pound linebacker to show i'm tough like nope just live the fight another day and that's kind of how i play like i I'm not. I'm a receiver. I, I'm not a huge fan of getting my shit rocked. Like I'd rather just go down, get six, six yards instead of getting seven yards, but avoiding that big hit to again live to fight another day. So he did that. Uh, you know, which I think, you know, being the best in the game at his time, like he was the, from '98 to 2006. There's no one better than him, and he was a guy that just w- was very comfortable being going down to the ground and avoiding the hit. Secondly, was you know if Marvin Harrison. I don't think pops up in some of the greatest of all time receiver discussions because he was a very quiet, unassuming, humble, you know, receiver in an era where receivers started to become a little bit more arrogant, loud mouth, you know, you know, celebration, et cetera, et cetera. Marvin was that quiet guy just went about his work and he game in game out year in and year out. He produced better than anybody else, but he never had to, you know, uh, tell people about it. He never, had, you know, he let his plane do the talk. And I love that about him. And the last thing, which is another topic that I've, I've gone on about is that, you know, he caught the ball with his body quite a bit. And I know a huge thing in, in football is you, receivers, tight ends, running backs, whatever, they, they, you're not allowed to catch the ball with your body. Like catching the ball with your body is a bad thing. Yet here is the most productive receiver of his generation that would catch majority of his passes with his body. Like he understood that there were time and situations that's appropriate to catch the ball with your body. Um, and he kind of broke this trend that you have to look this certain way to play receiver. You have to catch the ball with your hands, extend it from your body to play receiver. Um, and I'll, I'll die on that mountain that like catching ball off the body is a skill that all receivers should learn and develop and work on and be adaptable in instead of trying to, to discontinue that, that skill and that trait from receivers that catching the ball body is a bad thing. When in reality, it's a very, if you watch any great receiver, there's many cases that they catch the ball off the body and they understand there's times and situations that it is actually probably the best solution to the problem that they're facing. So all those things, that was a mouthful, but all those things, are, you know, what kind of stood out to Marvin Harrison in my mind. I mean, there's just so many, so many ways to go with this and, and so many questions to ask that I, I guess the, the first question that I would kind of go ahead and, and ask about was, I mean, he spent, you know, a very good portion of his career, you know, playing with, you know, one of the best, potentially one of the best quarterbacks of all time in Peyton Manning. And my question is, is that the the first kind of, I don't want to say attack, but the first point people would address is, you know, well, Peyton Manning made Marvin Harrison. How would you respond immediately to that? Because where does the quarterback wide receiver relationship truly fit in terms of production and even performance? I mean, is there what is that relationship to you as a wide receiver um, on the field of play? Because I know there's people saying, "Well, that he played with Peyton." I mean, I mean, anybody who played with Peyton in his prime is going to be outstanding. I mean, look at Dallas Clark and everybody who played with him. And I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just curious where you stand on that, and then maybe a little bit about that quarterback wide receiver relationship, how we should contextualize it and make sense of it. Yeah, that's always an interesting question. Kind of like the Tom Brady discussion that Tom Brady is a system quarterback. Like, who gives a shit? They're super successful. What does that matter? Uh, Marvin made Peyton better, and Peyton made Marvin Harrison better. That's, that's basically all there is to it. And but like you said, it, it is a kind of interacting relationship. And though, um, 
there's a it is an emerging they have like a like a, a emerging behavior between the two and i think for me as receiver it was a tremendously important thing um to play and i played with three quarterbacks during my college career and you know there's all for all of them you develop this process of understanding each other and um one thing that's i think that's missed in a lot of receiver play and i think you watch marvin and, and, and peyton they had this and what marvin did a great job of his routes is the receivers you have to give indicators and you have to have demeanor that you're that's consistent that the quarterback can pick up on to be able to know when to throw the ball and i think it was uh uh, Terry, I can't say his last name, Terry McLaughlin for the Redskins. Uh, yeah, Terry McLaurin. That's exactly McLaurin. who came yeah. to my mind, yeah. He, he talked about, where, you know, when you're running a route, there's indications that indicators, whether it be how you run your stem, what you do at the top of your stem in terms of sticking your foot in the ground, that those indications are what you need to be able to present as a receiver that the quarterback can then pick up that, that information and know, hey, that's the angle they're going to attack. That's when I need the ball to come out. So those things are very important and vitally important. It, it, it does take some time. But a lot of receivers don't understand that not only are you trying to deceive and create space from the, from the defense, but you have to have, but you can't do that same thing to the, your quarterback. If your quarterback can't tell what the angle that you're going to exit your break at, or when you're going to exit your break at, or the speed and the tempo you're going to exit your break at, he's he's not going to throw to the, the ball to you a lot, or it's not going to be very successful. And so good receivers know, and I think Marvin Harrison and Peyton had this this connection where Peyton could read and and uh, you know anticipate what. Marvin was going to do at the top of the route because he had gave clear indications in how in his style, in his consistency, in his body demeanors of this is when I'm going to break, this is how I'm going to break, the angle, the speed, etc. And that is a huge thing for quarterbacks. If you ask any quarterback with a new receiver, they'll tell you like I just can't read him. I can't read him. Quarterbacks are reading receivers just as you know the defenders reading a receiver. The quarterbacks actually reading information from the receiver, their speed, their demeanor, their stem how they interact with the ground in terms of that break point. So all that information, if you deceive your D-back, that's great. But if you also deceive your, your quarterback, it's not so great. And so there, there are different uh, techniques and styles and indicators that um, receivers need to be consistent in in order for that quarterback and receiver interplay or relationship to be successful. And so did Peyton Manning help Marvin Harrison, you know, become part of who he is? Absolutely. But Marvin Harrison also takes a lot of credit for that because he was a great consistent receiver in terms of his style, his demeanor, um, you know, how he made his breaks and cuts, that it's a relationship. So um, I don't buy that at all. Um, same with like buying t- Tom Brady is only successful because of the system he played in. That's bull crap. So um, they, they made each other successful. And uh, it's not just Peyton Manning making the receiver better, but it's also the receiver making the quarterback better. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of places that that kind of led me to. I mean, immediately I think of like getting open and people talk about, you know, he was open this many times on right. I'm thinking about, you know, when we're tracking data or, or maybe film analysis, like he was open, he got open. But I think what's so interesting about the discussion that you just brought up was being open, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that you are creating a throwing lane for your quarterback because creating a throwing lane throwing lane is a mutual exchange between you and your quarterback that lane isn't just created by you or it's observed by him that's why those those ideas of you know and again i'm not speaking to a specific system or you know criticizing anybody in particular but when we say as you know coaches sometimes and i remember myself doing this with my own quarterbacks and i and i don't think about this anymore i try to think differently throwing to grass throwing to grass throwing into open space you throw to open space, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the timing of that throw is in 
consistent with your wide receiver, who's probably the most important person in, you know, matriculating the football down the field as I get a little Hank Stram there. Let's matriculate the football down the field. It's not going to, it's not going to happen unless the recognition of grass and space is mutually observed by you and the wide receiver. So I think that mutuality between the receiver and the quarterback is such an important thing that we we forget sometimes to look at. But Mike, I want to I want to kind of get down to the to the field. Let's get on the turf, let's get between the lines and let's talk a little bit about, you know, you talked about the drive route, the dig route, the out route. I'm curious, take us a little inside of that in terms of, first of all, the the difference between the routes, but we mean where there's some overlap there, because unless I'm completely losing my mind, there could be maybe similarities within those routes or qualities within those routes, even though they're directionally different and maybe um, distance wise down the field different, but is there any, are there any kind of um, overlap between those routes that may allow or could have allowed Marvin to maybe utilize some of those deceptive skills to their maximum? Is there Could there be something within the routes that he was excelled at so much? Is there anything about those routes that we should be aware of that might take us a little bit deeper into how manipulative and adaptable he was? Yeah, and just go back to the point you just made, that mutual relationship between the quarterback and the receiver. Like you said, if the receiver's open, but they're open early or open late, and they don't understand kind of the, the whole process of what the quarterback's going through, like you said, they're, they're never going to be thrown to and never going to be open on time. So you have to have this understanding of that. If it's a play-action pass and the quarterback is going to take a five-step drop after that, 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 the timing when you need to be open has to correspond with the, the quarterback at the top of their drop. And there does take like this internal clock, it does be aware of some of the information variables that you are searching and perceiving because that's going to be the same information variables that the quarterback is, is, is relating to. So there is a, a certain uh, like timing to being open. And that's where, like, like I said, Marvin was really good at was that he understood that timing and was never rushed and never panicked if he was just slightly off that thing. Or he knew that, hey, if I, just, if I get pushed off the line on, the, on, a, on a, a release, that doesn't mean I can't get back to where I need to be and be, you know, make my break or get in that certain space at that same timing that maybe uh, Peyton Manning is going to be looking towards him. So understanding the, the whole global scheme from that, that mutual relationship is, is definitely important. Going back to the dig and the drive, yeah, they're, they're very obviously similar routes. A, a drive route being like a five-yard in and a dig yard being like anywhere from a 12 to 15-yard dig or in route as well. So they're basically the same, essentially kind of the same route, but just different levels. Um, <clears throat> what, you know, how could Marvin, you know, make himself – deceptive in each of those he he varied definitely varied up how he did in each of those and obviously being a five yard versus a 12 to 15 yard the the deeper digs they have more speed um you can have a little bit more complexity at the top of your stem in terms of you know making the d-back think you're going to go like a post or a corner or a go route or even an out route um while that shorter the drive route he did a couple different things so the drive route he really did a really good job was was um was a his speed and tempo off the ball and then his stem off the ball he was always great at burying up his stem and understanding where the apex defender was or where the invert defender was because that's a guy that you can't run into and you have to avoid. If they're, if they're playing some sort of zone, obviously you can't run a drive route into that apex or invert defender because that's the guy that's going to kind of hit you hard or break up that play. So he had a great understanding of how, A, I'm going to beat the corner, but also, B, not get in, you know, inside far enough where you're going to run into that apex defender. So he did a great job of, um, a just again varying up his tempo off the ball. 
you know, taking a wide release very fast to get the D-back's hips to open up and then clubbing across underneath for that drive route. Or if he saw like a cover two, he was very patient with his tempo, being slow, patient, patient, and then burst into his, his landmark and then creating that, again, that timing where right when he got into the break point, the ball is out. So he's sitting between that corner and that invert defender. So he understood that, you know, whether it's a cover two, whether it's an off man, whether it's a cover three, that there's different times and different locations I have to be in this location in order to successfully complete this pass. Now, the, like I said, the deep dig route, um, he was really, really good at manipulating his speed and his tempo at the top of the stem, uh, whether it be like a head and shoulder fake, whether it be a quick two-step stutter to, again, throw guys off balance or get people moving in an opposite direction that where he wants to go for that, that deep dig route. And then the same thing, a, a wonderful awareness of when does that gap or that space open up when does when are the, the linebackers going to get a certain point in the drop where they're going to start to maybe come down to a curl route or curl a flat? So understanding that internal time in that clock and also being, again, like I said three times now, searching the space and searching the, the defensive environment to when those things happen and then making his cut and his break. Um, and, again, that's something I work with a lot of young receivers is that they always think what's drawn on paper, the dig route has to be at 15 yards. Well, if you have your eyes up and you're searching, you're scanning, and things – take, you know, things open up at 12 yards, you have to take that 12 yards because that's when the ball needs to be out. So same thing with like a hook or a hook route or a comeback route, you know, it might be designed for 12 yards, but it's really when when can you get the defensive back's hips to flip? So your infer- your eyes have to be searching for that information. So it might be at 14 yards, D-back's eyes flip, and then we can make our break for a comeback or a hook. And the quarterback knows that as well. So it's less about certain landmarks and more about, the information that the defense is presenting in terms of when you are making these different decisions and making these different breaks and cuts to exploit that space. And I think Marvin was really good at that because his eyes were always up. He's always searching. He was more, you know, attuning himself to those affordances of space, of movement, rather than, well, it's got to be at 12 yards every single time because that's when it's drawn up on the whiteboard. So athletes have to be more, I think, aware and sensitive to that information that's allowing those affordances rather than just, you know, uh, it's 12 yards, so no matter what happens, it's at 12 yards. So I think Peyton and both Marvin were really, really good at those those two things. And you know what? I mean, I think everything that you just brought up there, specifically about the idea that the the the, the global intention here is to get the ball down the field and to become an opportunity for the quarterback to pass the football. And it doesn't mean that you're restricting yourself to a specific landmark, but rather you're keeping that global intention in mind of becoming a target, becoming an opportunity to move the football down the field. I I think that's fantastic. And I think that that even in our sport, that's sometimes overlooked at times because, you know, we are so kind of X's and O's and sometimes not really thinking about what are we functionally trying to do here? What are we actually trying to do? So Mike, as we kind of transition to the last segment here, as we kind of begin to to take the lessons of Marvin Harrison and this discussion, as we kind of take it to the field and maybe the film room, I want to ask you first a film room question. As I'm observing a wide receiver and I'm watching them on film unfold, if you were going to kind of begin to unpack their movement skill in a particular play or a particular route. I'm just curious, would you first go towards understanding the global concept potentially going on on the field and then begin to watch again in terms of their movement? Or would you be focusing only on the player? 
In other words, like let's just watch how his route unfolds in the absence of the other context. I think I know where you're going to go with this, but I'm just curious. You know, I think the, where a one wide receiver's route fits within the tapestry of a play is sometimes not respected. Am I am I wrong with that? No, you're you're 100 with that. You have to understand the global perspective or global scheme of that offense. And what's really been hard for me, you know, fortunate to be a coach where if I watch film, it's, you know, if I'm watching film by myself, it might definitely be a little bit more towards the individual to see how uh, they are adapting or how they are um, manipulating the defender, manipulating space and time. But when, but that's, again, like you said, that's very, it has its limitations. I prefer to watch film with the player present or at least be able to uh, talk with them to understand more of those global perspectives. And I think it's hard for, you know, for a scouting perspective where you don't have to get to have those conversations. You have to start with trying to understand the global perspective. I'm fortunate enough that the athletes that I'm probably watching film on most, more majority of the time, I get to have those conversations. It's more of a conversation back and forth or them kind of telling me, you know, what, what they've been told in coaching, you know, what is the landmark or what are the, what are the, uh, the basic steps of this route or this concept, you know, where you're supposed to be, you know, where's this, where's the first read compared to the second read. So I may, I'm fortunate to have those conversations because without those things, I think you are definitely missing a huge piece of the puzzle in terms of evaluating a player. Cause you never know what they're told. You never know, you know, you know, how, what they practice in the practice or what the coaches uh, technical cues are for them. So it's hard to really evaluate without knowing that information because that information is obviously going to change their intention and intention of how they, run routes or how they get open and things like that. So, but if I'm watching it by myself, I will definitely start with the individual just to see from an individual standpoint, um, their movement dexterity, their adaptability. Are they able to complement different routes together or are they able to make the same route um, look different differently um, if they run it two, three times a game. But the benefit would be as a coach, I get to have those conversations and step into their shoes and step into their eyes for a little bit to see you know, what were they seeing? What were they feeling? You know, uh, what was what's the feedback the coach gave you for this? What did he want you for this? That kind of thing. And I know that's probably a struggle for you, Matt, and any kind of evaluator. When you don't get to have those conversations, I think you're missing the big piece of the puzzle sometimes. And it's hard to, you know, step out on a leap of faith and knowing exactly what the athlete was doing in that instance. So no. I, and I, I think that's wonderful. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think that's always a struggle in our world. And and I keep kind of going back to something in in the in in our skill acquisition literature where you know the perception is couched within the action. You know, so the best we can do is take what the player is doing on the field as as writ rhyme and scripture of their perceptions and their actions being coupled because the decision is the action. And I keep kind of going back to that as a, as a mindful thought process, as I'm observing from, like you said, a very distant perspective, not having the athlete or even knowledge of the entire offense under my, under my kind of understanding, I have to kind of pick it up on the fly, but you did say something, you know, as we take those, those lessons of Marvin Harrison and maybe from a coaching perspective, Michael, and as you've woven this into your own practice and your own understanding, creating these opportunities for players to explore or for them to develop that authenticity, for them to take their unheralded kind of qualities and make it their own and be effective. What what can a what can a coach kind of do with some of their receivers? 
in practice, maybe during individual period or even, you know, team or group or unit period, however you define the next kind of leg up of complexity. Um, what, what could coaches kind of do to begin to create their own Marvin Harrison's? I want Marvin Harrison. What can I do to make Marvin Harrison on my team? Because to be honest with you, most high schools have more Marvin Harrison's in terms of their physical qualities than they have, you know, the guys that are like AJ Green. You know, we don't we don't have those in high school. So if we're talking to coaches about creating those kind of marvelous movers in their own high school setting, how can they begin to unpack development here based on some of the qualities that really Marvin Harrison exhibited on the field and what made him so great? Yeah. Uh, you know, first would be just to encourage more exploration. That would be my starting point. I think what we do is handcuff uh, not only receivers but all players into this is exactly how you run the route. If you see this coverage, this is exactly how you run the route. If the guys lined up inside, this is ex- so they they try to give them this playbook of this is exactly how you should run the route versus this coverage versus this coverage versus this coverage. Instead of allowing them a little more freedom and exploration to you know uh, experiment with how different ways that they can manipulate space, time, the defender via all those things I talked about, changing your tempo, changing your rhythm, changing your stem, changing your, your demeanor, et cetera. So allowing those things um, with our, with your receivers. That's one thing I, I talk to all the receivers a, a lot is, you know, I'll force them and this route, I want you to change your, your tempo and just see how they do it. So what that, does that mean to them? Does it allow them uh, to exploit the, the space or the defender more effectively? And it gives them experience with that. All right, this one, I want you to, I'm, I'm going to force you to change your stem. We're going to take a kind of a outside cut stem. So you're going to take three steps outside, then get back vertical and see what that does to the defender. See how that pulls them away or, or towards you? Or is it, you know, what is it? Is it a strength for you to do that kind of sort of manipulation of your stem? Um, so that would be A, that, you know, is this allowing them to experiment with especially stem, especially tempo and pace? Uh, that, that, those are my main two starting points with my receivers in, in, in that regard. Um, you know, and then secondly would be as much as possible as getting them into environments that allow them to interact with a defender. I think there's high school, especially you know, all levels, there's way too many routes done on air where you don't get that, that kind of informational variable, the defender in that, in the space. So you're just running routes on air and you're not really actually um, aware of how you can manipulate your tempo space, your stem. To that that affects the defender whether it pulls or draws them in closer and you know uh, gets them to flip their hips and go on a, a go route. So I think as much as possible, have a defender in the space when you're working on these things, so that they can see firsthand and experience firsthand just how those manipulations can affect the defender. Because like you talked about, there's a mutual relationship between the quarterback and the receiver. There's a mutual relationship between the receiver and the defensive back. And so the more we can have that defensive back, I think the stronger that relationship or the more comfortable that relationship becomes for the receiver to be able to understand how they can manipulate that defender, how they can search and scan that defender for key information variables that allows them to exploit them or allows them to use their their demeanor, their their technique against them to get open. So those are two things that I, I work on a lot. I know in receivers, there's a ton of work on air or just doing like different releases, teaching them like a one, two release on air or I think more and more benefit would come from getting them in front of actual defenders and then allowing them to experiment and forcing them to experiment in that regard. Um, that's kind of what I do mostly. The other thing that I think we found a big benefit what it on is if we do like one-on-ones or we're doing like a skelly type of routine, 
it is we'll run the, I'll have them run the same route, you know, two to four times in a row. And I tell them each time you got to make this look differently. And the, the defense doesn't necessarily know that the same play is coming because the defense, let's be honest, defense players are stupid, right? <laughs> So maybe by the third or fourth time they find We don't really out. mean that. We're just we're just offensively minded people, so excuse us. <laughs> so like they're like, well, isn't the defense gonna pick up on that? Like, A, no, they're stupid. And B, that's that's fine. Because you never know. Like in, in the fourth quarter, you may be on third and eight be called on to run a route that you ran two times earlier. And the defense is gonna the cornerback or the defender is probably gonna pick up on some of that information or understand this is a key play at this moment in time. They may be cheating that, and that's perfectly okay. And so I want them will repeat the same route or the same play three, four times in a row, and I'll force them. you got to make each one of these look differently. Can you get open for all four of those times? Because by the third rep, by the fourth rep, the defense is like, all right, they just ran this two or three times in a row. I, I know it's probably going to come again. So how can you, in those disadvantaged situations, trying to put your receivers in disadvantaged situations, can they still manipulate the defender? Can they still create space? Can they still get open? Can they still you know, be adaptable in finding a solution to that ever – uh, increasing difficulty problems. So um, those are the ways I go about it. Um, but I, I, I don't think some of the ways that I, I watch how receivers train, it's a lot of things on air. It's a lot of things on like you're going to work on one, two shimmy. Then, then one, you know, another, it's, it's really these, these things where there, there's like these, the octagons wherever on the ground, they got to put two steps in there and they got to do this. They're telling them, they're prescribing them exactly how to, to do a release rather than allowing them to experiment, allowing them, um, to explore in an actual environment that, per- that contains that information that they're going to encounter in sport. And so I'm a huge proponent of you got to get in front of the defender. You can't do things on air that is not productive. You have to get into a defender to allow those things to kind of uh, adapt and emerge in an actual environment that contains, you know, a lot of the specified information that, it, that the game environment is going to contain as well. So that's how I go about it. No, and and I think that you know that just it should resonate with everybody when you when you smell that certain smell that brings you back to a moment in your time when you were having that meal, or maybe you hear a certain song that brings you back to a certain kind of uh, portion of your life when you were having fun with your friends. There's a lot of different types of information that ground us in the experiences that we have, and the more and more that we expose ourselves to the richness of those environments, the more experiences, senses, sensations that we allow ourselves to kind of ground us in the moment so we can remember back to hey i remember in practice this particular move is it seems like the exact same thing i'm going to try it now i feel it i feel it and and feeling it has meaning it could be proprioceptive it could be auditory it could be distances just spatial distances between the two the size of the opponent whatever there could be a lot of things but the more we do things in isolation of the defense uh, the more we're relying upon uh, you know, a certain type of uh, unpracticed approach to become prevalent when we get to the game. And Mike, I mean, you know, for everybody, I'm just letting you know, one of our presenters, Ross Cooper is going to, is going to have a field day with, he's going to, he's presenting on cornerbacks. So, I mean, I'm just, he's presented on cornerbacks. So I know he's going to have some words with you, Mr. Zweifel about, uh, about wide receivers and offensive players and defensive players. He's going to have some words. Um, but Michael, this has been an absolute blast. Yeah, I mean, go back, like, there's a little video on Julio Jones, just I think this past week or last week, where he came out talking about releases. Yep. He talked about how on a release, he might take a little outside stem. But the purpose of that stem is to garner, gain information 
that he's going to be attuned to from the defender, whether they stay put or they overplay. It's not like I'm just going to do this on air because it looks cool. He's doing it to actually uh, search the, the defender for information that will allow him to have an emergent behavior. He's not doing it for the sake of doing it, which I think a lot of receiver play is. We're just going to do this for the sake of doing it. It's You're doing it to actually um, manipulate the defender, which allows more rich information to come back to the receiver to how you want to have this behavior emerge. Rather than, again, going through an, you know the square on the ground and putting two feet in, the purpose of your movement is to A, manipulate, and to B, to give you more rich information that you can attune to and then calibrate your movements around rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. And again, receiver play, I think, is you're doing it for the sake of doing it. You're going to take an outside release because my coach told me I should take an outside release with no actual intent, intention, or attention behind it. Well, why you're doing that? Well, what information am I hoping to gain or garner from taking that different stem? Or what am I supposed? What am I trying to gain from changing my tempo and, and uh, my pace by manipulating that and changing that? We well, are hoping to, you know, pick up and search the defenders, changing their demeanor, changing their body language, because that will allow you to exploit that to your advantage. And so that's what I, I think is missing in receiver play is that you copy a release and you do it on air. So you see Julio Jones do a release and you just copy that. Again, we talked about earlier watching film. Well, you don't know, actually know why that he did that release. Well, the reason he was doing that release is to gain more information, more inf- rich information that allows him to then exploit the defender. He's not just doing it because for the sake of doing it, like a lot of receiver play is, we're just going to do this release because I saw Julio Jones do this release. Well, that's, that's not the reason to do it. And so, um, but yeah, I, I look nope. forward to Ross because his his talk would be great. I mean, receivers are the superior athletes, the more handsome athletes as well. So I, I don't know where to <laughs> go with it, but I, I I feel the gauntlet being thrown down. <laughs> I feel the gauntlet being thrown down. We will we will certainly explore the the nature of that gauntlet in further detail when I'm sure Ross will be talking about cornerbacks. He will be bringing it to your doorstep uh, right. in social media as well. We're all good friends here, so this is this is just fun fun banter. But I mean. I think it's. I think this was an outstanding discussion, Michael. And I know for all of the people out here listening, and they want to maybe pick your brain about you know wide receiver play, throw up a, something they're doing in practice, just throw it up on social media. Here's something I'm doing. What are your thoughts? How can they get in touch with you, Michael? What are what what, what can they? How can they get in touch with you? And what are some things maybe you're working on right now that you want us to stay tuned for in the future? Yeah. So how can they reach me? Um, do you have show notes, Matt? Uh, yeah, we will. We will have show notes. Your handle will be in there. Um, but if is is social media the best? And where and where can they find you specifically? Yeah, social media. So uh, Twitter's okay. Instagram would be probably better um, at DBA Performance or even at, at Football Skills Development on uh, uh, FB Skill Development on Instagram. That's where I put a lot of my football stuff, so I don't bombard my 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 gym, my personal business, building better athletes with just purely football stuff. Um, Twitter's okay at BBA Performance. Another good one. Um, reach out to us at, at Emergent MBMT, Emergent Movement on social media is another great one where we're doing a lot of things with football and we love to hear from people. Um, so those are those are probably the main uh, locations or situations. And Matt, you'll put up my email. Feel free to email me as well. That's another good one to reach out to me on. So on behalf of myself, Michael, and everybody out there, we wish you well and during this crazy, tumultuous time uh, in our nation and in our world. We're wishing you the best to you and your families. And from everybody here at Saturday to Sunday, we really hope that this was just a, an, a real just opportunity to sit down, unpack the wide receiver position, get a little closer to the field, as we always say in these summer seminar series, and take it home. And there's no doubt uh, Mike took us there by far 
with his discussion of Marvin Harrison. So a big thank you to Michael and for everybody else at the Saturday Sunday Football Podcast. Thank you so much for spending your precious time with us. And we will see you next time as we take you from Saturday to Sunday.